Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 23, 1 through 12. And we're going to continue to examine here Jesus' indictment against the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And as we're well familiar with this passage, it is an indictment that confronts their hypocrisy, the emptiness of their profession of love for their God. And in his indictment of these leaders, he gives us an anatomy of hypocrisy and humility. In other words, he exposes the inner life, the inner reasoning, the thinking of those who are caught in the trap and the lie of hypocrisy and what humility looks like in the heart of the righteous. And in so doing that, he's calling both these leaders and through his word, he's calling us to repent, to repent and to know him and to follow him truly. And the repentance that he calls for is the very evidence of spiritual life. Now, as we noted last week, the theme of these verses is that hypocrisy is deception that leads to destruction, while humility is a path to grace. Humility is the path to grace. So we're going to begin by reading the passage, verses 1 through 12, then we'll briefly review what we covered last week, and then pick up at verse 5 and take it all the way through the end of this section. So read with me in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now Jesus has just finished condemning the leaders. He has just finished condemning the leaders for their hypocritical religion, their failure to discern the truth of God from His Word. And here where we left off last week, Jesus laid on their, at their charge and at their feet the indictment that they are the leaders of God's people, but instead of shepherding God's people, they have burdened them. They have weighed them down with that very Word that was to be their relief. It was to be their rest and their guidance. They laid heavy burdens, he says, on their shoulders while they were unwilling to help them. They were unwilling to show compassion. They were unwilling to help them carry that burden. They were unwilling to come alongside the people of God and to minister grace to them. In other words, they were teachers who loved authority over the people. They were teachers who loved the respect of the people. But they are not teachers who loved the people 
themselves. And as we mentioned last week, the basic issue is that they had no love of God or for God in themselves, which is what Jesus said to them in John 5, 42. You do not have the love of God in yourself. That's the problem. That's the root of the problem. The hypocrite then does not love giving glory to God, but only in receiving it. So you had a class of people then whose entire religious effort was driven by self-interest. Driven by self-interest. And it is this self-interest which is the key or the central reason of why they so hated Christ. Of why they so intensely despised Him and wanted to rid themselves of Him. He was a threat to their kingdom of self. He was a threat to this facade that they had built up around themselves in which they sought to receive honor from others. Jesus threatened that. He exposed it. He showed it to be empty. And so they hated him for it. As a matter of fact, Luke 13, 17 says this. After a debate about the Sabbath, Luke makes this comment. And all of his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. And that was the tenure of his whole ministry. He continually humiliated them and they continually scrambled together to see how they might destroy him. As a matter of fact, Matthew 27, 18 makes this note that Pilate knew when the leaders handed him over, they did so because of envy. They were jealous of him. Even Pilate understood that. Yet, Jesus gives even a deeper reason. In John 3.20, he says this, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. They will be made known. Now, sometimes when we think of the darkness in this verse, we think of those things that are openly wicked deeds or openly wicked thoughts or rejection of Christ. And yet, it's so much more than that. This darkness applies just as much to the morally and religious committed person who hides behind their commitment a heart of hypocrisy. Indeed, the darkness includes those who find in religion or morality anything else or everything that will provide for them a safety net from true conviction of sin. And they resist any truth that would shatter that false sense of security or the image that they have built up before others. And again, as we noted last week, the basic problem is this, that they did not have a conviction of their own sin. They did not truly understand the righteous requirement and the nature of God that was revealed in the law. And so they had no conviction of sin, they had no need for divine grace, and therefore they had no love for God. And so all of their religion was completely self-driven. They were unwilling to lift a finger then, to help carry the heavy burdens that they placed on people. They sought only the increase of their self-importance and their sense of honor. And so Jesus then builds on that and he says in verse 5, which is where we pick it up this morning, Indeed, not only do they do all that they do only to burden people that they might advance themselves, increase their own sense of authority, but they do also all their deeds in verse 5, To be noticed by men. To be noticed by men. And here we'll note the second part then of this section. 
Jesus is called to depart from hypocrisy and pursue humility. But in order to know what we are to depart from, it's important to understand how hypocrisy works in the heart and how it is that it lays a hold of the fallen heart and deceives us. And so we'll notice first then the motivation of the hypocrite. The motivation of the hypocrite. Again, he says, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And that's the very core of hypocrisy. There is at the very base level of the hypocrite a fear of men rather than a fear of God. There is no fear of God in their hearts. Looking into the affections of the hypocritical heart, there is a deep concern for what other people think of them. There's a deep concern for how they're perceived by others and other people's opinion. In fact, you could say they are preoccupied with these things, preoccupied with their reputation in the world. They are not concerned with whether God is pleased with them, whether God is pleased with their life. He says here that they do everything to be noticed. And this is a striking term. It has the idea of looking with intensity to consider, to discover, and sometimes it's translated as gaze upon, looking intensely. So they're doing things so that people will look and consider and discover their own righteousness, seek to discover in all of that they do a piety that is worthy of honor and respect. They want people to have an awe of them, these leaders do. And again, this is not a new indictment, particularly even in Matthew. You're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to turn there. I'll remind you of it. In chapter 6, Jesus exposing what true righteousness is to look like and revealing what is an untrue or a false righteousness says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. In other words, don't do the things that you do for the purpose of being noticed by others. It is a basic point. And notice the things that he addresses here in Matthew 6. He addresses their giving to the poor, their prayer to God, their fasting, these deeds of religious devotion, these very things that were meant to be a display of dependence upon God, self-sacrifice, humility over sin and devotion to the Lord, all of these things that they were doing that were externally so right were, in fact, for them, acts of sin. Acts of sin. So for the hypocrite, a righteous deed then becomes a sinful deed, an unrighteous deed because of the issue of the heart. So notice what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 23. Notice what he's doing. He's addressing their motivation. Their motivation. And that's where righteousness begins. And I want to make just two simple observations here. Two obvious observations and implications here then from the text. And the first is this. That God knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When God looks down at heaven, we so often stop by thinking that His gaze ends at what we do with our hands or the verbal words that we speak. But in fact, when God looks down from heaven as it were... He is observing our heart. He's observing the inner life of man. And this is clear throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 6-5, he says when he gives the reason for his judgment that's coming upon the world, he noticed that the intention of the thoughts of their hearts was uh, always evil continually. 
That's a powerful verse. He's not only saying, I know their thoughts, but I know the reason why they think the things that they do beyond even what they say or do in their life. And that is throughout Scripture. God looks from heaven and He sees the hearts and the thoughts of men. That is what God is looking at, not mere externals. So it will be no good then to profess works before God or even good works or even helpful works if the heart isn't right before Him. If the heart isn't right. And that's what Jesus is exposing here, both in these leaders and everyone who would be caught in this trap. And in fact, when Jesus brings judgment both on His church and on the unrighteous world, that judgment is going to include not simply deeds, but is going to include the motives of the heart. Let me just remind you briefly of a passage that you're aware of. 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, Jesus is addressing leaders and teachers among the Corinthian church. And he says these very familiar words, or Paul does. He says this, Now if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's will become, work will become evident for the day, that is the day of judgment, the day when it is exposed before God. The day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. It will test the quality of each man's work. And in fact then, some who would seem to have gold and precious stones on earth when put into the light of God's holiness and the motive of the heart is tested, it will be shown to be straw, stubble, those things to be burned. It will do them no good because their heart was not right. As a matter of fact, he says later in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, there is going to be a great reversal on the day of judgment. And many things that we may look at or men may look at and admire here on this earth will be shown to be empty because it was not done with the right heart before God. And the converse is true also. So Jesus is exposing the fact that God looks at the motive of the heart. The motive of the heart. Second simple observation is this. That true spirituality then, spiritual life, is a reality of the heart. In other words, the basic manifestation of spiritual life then is to love God and to love Christ. It's an inner desire to be pleasing to Him, to be faithful to Him. David said these great words in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance. You desire truth in the innermost being. You desire truth in the innermost being. The hypocrite does not inwardly desire to walk in truth before God but only to be praised for walking in truth by men. If the praise for the external deed is there in the heart of the hypocrite, then there is no conviction for whatever is inconsistent in their heart. You see, that's what he's exposing. In fact, this reliance on the praise of men is so blinding that their confidence of their own righteousness is so certain that they truly do reason in themselves that they have pleased God. They truly do reason in themselves that God is pleased with them, regardless of what attitude might be in their heart. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus said this in Luke 18, 9. He said he gave this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they truly did trust in themselves that they were righteous. So piety becomes in the heart of a hypocrite a means of self-assurance. A means of self-assurance. I would suggest to you then that spirituality is not proven by deeds alone, but is improved or approved by an increasing love for God in Christ. As opposed to these leaders or opposed to the heart of hypocrite, you know if you're growing in Christ, not by the things that you do, but you would ask yourself questions like, am I growing in the intensity of the hatred of the sin in my heart? Am I daily becoming more dependent upon the Spirit of God and of Christ to do anything because I know my absolute inability to do anything? These are the kind of questions that reveal spirituality. Not an increase in deeds, not an increase in knowledge, not an increase in external reputation, but an increasing in self-abhorrence, an increase in love for Christ, an increase in a longing to be with Him that we might be free from the sin that pollutes us. Indeed, that is the very reason that Jesus began, began the Sermon on the Mount to say that righteousness in the kingdom is what first? Poverty of spirit. Mourning over sin. That's what righteousness looks like and that's what we see in the great saints. We admire Paul and we want to be like him when he says, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. But this is something that's utterly foreign to the hypocrite. Utterly foreign to the hypocrite. They do not increase in the lack of confidence in themselves, but as he says here, they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men, and as long as they're noticed, they increase in their confidence in self. If they receive the praise of men, they are satisfied. They have received what they sought, and they have received, to use the words of Jesus, their reward in full. And it's all here on this earth. Now let's notice secondly here, the second part of that verse. What are the deeds of hypocrisy? What are deeds of false spirituality? What is he talking about? He's not talking about simply the good things that they do. There were very good things that they do. And there's very good things that hypocrites do. That's not the deeds. So what are the deeds of hypocrisy? Well, let's notice secondly then the subtle works of hypocrisy. Look at the second part of this verse, of verse 5. He says, For they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen their tassels. In other words, they give special attention to outward signs of piety and displays of spirituality. Outward signs of their religious commitment to make sure they're noticed. Now what are these and how would they have expressed devotion in this context? Phylacteries, the root meaning of this term means amulets or other charms in the Greek religion. It was uh, used to, to ward off evil spirits in pagan culture. For the Jew, however, while there might be some of that that Jesus is accusing them of, is essentially referred to these small leather boxes. They were about an inch and a half uh, square. Uh, most likely they could have been rectangle, that rectangular. But they were these small leather boxes. They were worn on the left arm above the elbow so as to be near the heart. And then on the forehead upwards right at to where the hairline uh, begins. They were worn by most Jewish males for morning prayer or in the synagogue, although it's not completely certain how widespread or how often all of the males did that. But certainly the rabbis did. Certainly the leaders did. 
And on the two sides of this box was the Hebrew letter Shin, and then the letter Daleth was notched on the back of the leather strap that went around the forehead, and then it was wrapped in such a way that it formed the Hebrew letter Yod. And when you put those together, those are the consonants for the word Shaddai. You know that term. It means the Almighty. Inside the boxes were four pieces of uh, parchment, and they were rolled up into small little pieces and stuck inside four compartments of this little box. And on these four pieces of parchment, parchment, there were these passages, Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 22, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is the Shema, Exodus 13, 11 through 16, and uh, uh, Exodus 13, uh, Actually, those were the four verses, excuse me. And so these boxes then were stuffed with these passages and they were placed on the arm and on the forehead. And then they were attached with a leather strap that was sewn to the bottom of the box with 12 stitches that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it is possibly these straps that Jesus is referring to when he says they broaden their phylacteries. In other words, it's possible that what he's referring to is they lengthened the width of these leather straps, which called for a bigger box that they would put on their arm and on their head. Although recent discoveries suggest that maybe they were a rectangular. rectangular. But either way, that's not the point. The point that Jesus is making is that they made them bigger. They drew or justified wearing them from such passages as Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. And let me just read that to you so you hear what was going on in the mind anyway of these leaders. Deuteronomy chapter 6, something you're familiar with, a passage uh, that you're familiar with. He says this. Uh, These words I am commanding you today, they they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and of your gates. And so they took from that passage and others the command then to keep a visible representation of the commandments of God on their body. And as they strapped them to their body, they prayed this prayer. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with the commandments and enjoyed us to put on phylacteries, or teflon, which is the Hebrew word for frontals. And they repeated that prayer as they put on each box. Now I want you to notice, look back at verse 5 of Matthew 23. What is Jesus rebuking them for? Is Jesus rebuking them for wearing phylacteries? Was that sin? Look at what he says. He's not rebuking them for wearing phylacteries. He rebukes them, as was mentioned, for making them bigger and for making them broader. In other words, a Jew in that culture could put on a phylactery to the glory of God. And they could worship God in doing that and honor Him. The issue with these leaders was not wearing phylacteries. That wasn't the issue. It was that they desired to be noticed for wearing them. Again, Jesus is addressing the motive of the heart. So for one, what is an act of righteousness is for another an act of hypocrisy and sin. In a similar way, he says they lengthen the tassels of their garments. Tassels or fringes in the uh, the King James Version. Twisted cords of thread that hung from the four corners of the garment. 
The command comes from Numbers 15, I won't read it, Numbers 15, 37 through 41. And it was a command of God for them to wear these tassels on their garments. And it was to be a reminder of all of the commandments of God. And again, these tassels were genuinely worn by all Jewish males. It's not certain how many actually did that. Certainly, again, the rabbis and the leaders and the teachers did Jesus himself, in fact, had these tassels on his garments. You'll remember the woman that was hemorrhaging in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, laid a hold of them and she was healed. The sick came in Matthew 14, 36, and they implored him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. In modern Judaism, these tassels are actually placed on the four corners of a prayer shawl when they go to pray. Now again, I want you to notice this though. That as with the phylacteries, Jesus does not condemn them for having tassels. He condemns them for lengthening the tassels for the purpose of drawing attention to their spirituality, their commitment to the law. And the great irony here is that by their display of commitment to the law, in that very display, they are breaking God's law. Which was what? First and foremost, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And they were not doing that. They were violating it. But I want to make a caveat here, a little footnote. As we hear this and as we read this passage, we are in danger also of violating Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge. Do not judge. Why would I say that? Because it's easy to see and criticize their sin, their speck, but fail to realize that we have subtle ways of committing the same sin with a log in our own eye. So what are some modern day parallels? We're not, any of us in this room, in danger of going out and getting a broad phylactery and sticking it on our head or on our arm. But then are we free from this same kind of sin? Are we immune to this same kind of sin of the heart? And the answer is clearly no, we are not. So what are some of the ways that we commit this same sin today? Well, the obvious would be, from a religious point of view, would be the ornate vestments and rituals of Roman Catholicism. That's rather obvious. But what about in our circles? What about in our circles? Well, some of us may have grown up in circles where it's very important to note how many people you've witnessed to during that week. What things you've done for Jesus that week. And it's very important that those things are made known. We may put on religious items to display so that we might be noticed for how spiritual we are. It can be things as subtle as structuring our conversation in such a way that we make clear whatever sacrifice we've made for someone else or whether act of obedience that we've done for Jesus. It could be something like the inflection of our voice, a facial expression, or anything that we do to give an appearance of piety and sincerity and devotion when in fact it is not something that's matched in our heart. We only want someone to notice. Indeed, it's anything that we do with a secret desire that somebody else will notice us for our spirituality, for our commitment, for our sacrifice. Anything that we do that might produce admiration in someone else for us. It's very subtle. It's very subtle sin. And that's why it's so easy to gain a hold on the heart. That's why it's so easy to pollute the things that we do. And I want you to notice one other thing here then. The, the issue is that the battle with sin begins in the mind and the heart. The battle with sin begins in the mind and the heart. 
That's where genuine faith and love for God is proven, not externals. We pursue righteousness first from the inside, not from the outside. That is the great error. And I want you to notice this also. That Jesus is here addressing religious hypocrites, but a true believer can sin in this area and may do that more often than we think. But the difference is this, that a true believer is not comfortable with this sin. They are not at peace with this sin in their heart. A true believer can sin in this area, but they hate it. They do battle with it. They're ashamed by it. They confess it to the Lord. They seek to change. A hypocrite doesn't do any of those things. They live quite comfortably with this sin, and as long as it's hidden from others, they are quite content to remain as they are. That's the difference. That's the difference. The distinction marks this distinction of whether we do battle with the sin in our hearts or whether we do not do battle with the sin in our hearts is what marks the difference between a Christian who is working out their salvation and someone who is a Christian in name only but has not yet been converted and tasted the grace of God in Christ. That's what marks the difference. The reality of salvation is not the absence of sin but the hatred of sin because of love for Christ. That's the difference. What marks salvation is a trust in Christ alone, in Christ alone for forgiveness. The hypocrite, again, does neither of these things. They do not hate the sin. They do not battle with sin in their heart. Sin does not drive them to the cross saying, God, be merciful to me. Forgive me. Change me. I am a wicked person. I need your grace. That doesn't go on in the heart of a hypocrite. Never. In fact, they feel quite secure in their praise. Let's note thirdly then here the inner delights of a hypocrite. Notice the motivation and the subtle works of the hypocrite. Look at the inner delights of a hypocrite. What does a hypocrite love? What does a hypocrite love? Well, they love to be noticed and they love to be honored. Look at what he says. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. This is like spiritual candy to a hypocrite. And they silently gorge themselves on the praise and admiration and the honor of men. Now notice back in verse 6. What is the key word there? What is the key word in verse 6? I've mentioned it several times. The key word is this. It's love. It's love. Phileo. You know that word. You've heard it before uh, mentioned. It refers to someone or something for which there is a strong affection, a delight, or an appreciation. It speaks of friendship very often. One described it as to have deep feelings for. It's a term that's used of love between friends, love between Christians, even the Father's love for the Son in John 5.20 and other ways. And here it is with the hypocrite, that song, strong sort of affection and devotion is that they love to be loved by men and it satisfies them enough that they have no other inward longing to be loved or to know the love of God or to love Him. In other words, the love that they receive and the admiration that they receive from others satisfies them. And so there's nothing in them longing for more. There's nothing in them that drives them to the foot of the cross. Nothing in them that drives them to honor and adore God and be ashamed for not honoring and adoring Him more. Honor at banquets and the synagogues, titles of distinction in the public square are all the secret loves of hypocrites. Who needs repentance if you have all of those things? Who needs repentance? Who hates sin when your heart is filled with such joy and satisfaction 
at these externals and the praise that's received. And so it is with those trapped in hypocrisy. Now I want to note this, however, that there's a key issue here. There's a key issue that goes, I think, even a little bit below the issue of just hypocrisy, this duplicitous life that the hypocrite lives. And it may not be totally duplicit in their own mind, but it is before God. But the key issue here is this, that this person loves their life in this world. They are almost completely centered on this world. And that then forms a striking connection, a striking link with Jesus' call to repentance. That faith which marks true spiritual life. Jesus says this, using the same word phileo, in John 12, 25, he says this, He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus said a similar thing to the disciples back in 16, 25, when he says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what is Jesus really calling us to in repentance? He's calling us to say this from a genuine heart that when we come to this place of repentance, when we come to this place of turning to Christ, we're turning from our love for honor in this world. We turn from seeking our comforts and our security and our delights in this world and we turn to find them in Christ. We entrust all of these things to Christ and we desire to find all of these things in Christ. He becomes the treasure hidden in the field. In fact, in the repentant heart says that I'm willing to suffer dishonor in this world. I'm willing to lose all of my comforts. I'm willing to lose all of the praise of men and in fact be despised by them that I may gain Christ and have fellowship with the Father through Him. That's what repentance looks like. And that's what Jesus is calling these leaders to and to us to and it was something that is utterly rejected. He basically says you love the honor of men, you love authority, you love wealth and comfort, but you will not love me. And so they rejected the love of God, extended to them and in their hearts. And they chose a path of hypocrisy. Now Jesus is going to change directions a bit here and he's going to address his disciples directly in verse 8. He's speaking now directly to his disciples who are among the crowds here. And he calls them to reject this life of hypocrisy and to pursue humility. And first of all, he says, eschew earthly honors and titles. He says, do not be called by rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. That is Christ. Now notice in verse 8 and in verse 10, he says, do not be called. And in verse 9, he says, do not call. In other words, don't wrongly receive or give this kind of honor among men because, and this is the key, it is honor that belongs to God alone. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. He's the rightful one to receive glory and honor, not us. And that's the point. Now, as he's saying here, however, that it's wrong to accept any or give any titles of honor or recognition among men, some take it that way. They think we should just get rid of all of them, that that's what Jesus means. 
He has, Paul says, however, in Romans 13, 7, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, which would indeed include certain amount of titles. It's not wrong to call someone doctor in the right occasion, or pastor or president. Indeed, pastor, deacon, and elder are titles given by God himself. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's warning them against seeking the honor of these titles, seeking them and loving them for self-exalting reasons. There is a proper decorum and courtesy of our culture that recognizes titles when it's appropriate. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Clearly, he is decrying or rebuking or rejecting, again, those ostentatious titles and deeds that are done, we most obviously associate them with the Roman Catholic Church, but there are others in the Anglican and Episcopal and Orthodox Church also. Things in the Roman Catholic Church such as kissing the ring of the Pope, those things are abhorrent to Christ. They are abhorrent to Him. They are putrid. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. Calling a priest father is wrong. We should never do that even out of respect. Or common courtesy because it is an offense to God. Now just as wearing the tassels, however, and phylacteries is not wrong in itself, so are not all the normal titles that we would use in our culture. Again, doctor, pastor, president, other things. It's the showy self-exaltation that Jesus is condemning here. Now let's consider these then a bit more closely. The term rabbi simply means teacher. It's someone who was learned in the law of God, recognized as a teacher, usually had a group of disciples. The Lord was a rabbi. He was called rabbi. He had his own group of disciples. We know we've been walking with him through the gospel. This, is, this injunction here, do not be called rabbi, is very similar to what he says in verse 10. Do not be called leader, which refers to one who provides instruction or guidance. The term father was sometimes used to speak of the patriarchs. Jacob is called our father in John chapter 4 verse 12. Paul uses that same thing referring to the patriarchs in Romans 9, 5 and other places. Sometimes it was referred to, used to refer to the great rabbis of the past. Abraham is called in scripture the father of all who believe and the father of many nations. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul tells the Corinthian church, I became your father through the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2.11, Paul says, I exhort you as a father would his own children. He calls Timothy my true child in the faith. And in John chapter 2, the apostle recognized that there are those who are spiritual fathers by virtue of maturity. So what is he talking about here? It's not any use of the term father. So how do these other things fit with Jesus' command? What Jesus is condemning here is the use of those as titles to set somebody off. In other words, like Pope, Papa, things like that, where you put yourself as the source of spiritual good to a people. When these other uses that I just mentioned are employed, it's used, the Father is used not as a title, but to describe a relationship. Indeed, secondly, it describes a relationship that is marked by sacrifice, tenderness, love, care, and shepherding. Later, the disciples would rightly take on the title of Apostle. That was right to have that title. It was a title that the Lord gave them, but it was a title that was marked in its legitimacy by a life of humble service, sacrifice, and faithfulness, exactly the opposite of what was evident in these leaders among Israel. 
There are so many places to go here. I'm going to mention just one to you. When Paul was setting himself off from the false teachers who had come in and who did delight in this sort of praise of men, who did delight in being exalted in the eyes of men, and in fact wanted the praise and the delight of those among the Corinthian church. And so Paul is writing to them and he's saying essentially, I'm putting myself out as the true apostle. I am the one who brought the gospel to you. I am the one who sacrificed for you. I am the one who loved loves you unlike these false teachers. In fact, my love and my right to be called an apostle whom you are to listen to is proven by my very sacrifice. We know the list. He says he was shipwrecked. He was received 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He spent a night and a day in the deep. He was on danger from journeys and rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. He had sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and inexposed to the elements. And beyond all of those external things, he says, there was the daily pressure of concern for the churches. If you bear the title of apostle, that's what marks you off. That's what marks you off. In fact, he says over in chapter 12, Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you, the more am I to be loved, the less. That's a true leader. It's okay to call him an apostle. That's what he is. And his life showed that. That's not what Jesus is condemning here. This is exactly the opposite of what these leaders showed and what a hypocritical or false teacher shows. They're not bearing their rank or their office for service to others, but only in service to themselves. Only in service to themselves. Notice the corrective then that he gives in those verses 8 through 10. It is to acknowledge God's right honor alone. In other words, acknowledge the fact that God alone is worthy of this kind of honor. God's true servants do not seek this honor nor revel in it if it's given because from the heart they readily acknowledge that all of these things come from God. And I'm going to mention these just briefly. He says, do not be called rabbi for because one is your teacher. In other words, God alone is the one from whom we receive knowledge and understanding. It's His Word. It's His Spirit that gives us understanding. If you are a believer, then it's because you've been taught of God. Not because of a human person. 1 John 2.27 says this, You have no need for anyone to teach you, but His anointing teaches you about all things. He's not saying that we don't recognize teachers. In 1 Timothy 5, we give them double honor for that. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying is this, is that a true teacher, though he might teach and be used as an instrument of God, deflects all of that back to God as the one who is the ultimate teacher, as the one who has enabled him to do that, as the one who has truly worked in the heart of those who might have received some kind of blessing through a human instrument. That's the heart of a true teacher. He then adds, and you are all brothers, which is to say that you are all know that you're of the same spiritual family. We're all on equal footing. No matter how God may exalt us before men, 
And no matter how much one may experience the natural honor that comes from being used by God in the heart and the life of others, the heart of the teacher yet understands that we're all equally brothers and sisters in the family of God. We've all been saved by grace and nothing more, and that whatever we do, it's only to have an opportunity to serve Christ who is our King. He's dealing with the heart. He says, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father in heaven. Do not call anyone here on earth your father. In other words, in a spiritual sense or as a title, don't give undue credit to a human person is the idea. That we acknowledge God alone is our father. We have the spirit of adoption in Christ by which we call out to God as father. He says, do not be called leader, for one is your leader, that is the Christ. And this is an astounding statement, really, and is another testimony, a subtle testimony, granted, but it is a testimony to his deity. Look at how he positions this. Look at verse 9. He's saying essentially in this, don't take on these titles because they belong only to God. Don't take on credit for these things because credit belongs only to God. And then look how he puts these things next to each other. Verse 9, one is your father who is in heaven and one is your leader. In other words, he places Christ right next to the Father as distinct and yet equal as honor and receiving the honor of men. Now the point here is this. In the heart of God's true servants, there's a real sense that there's nothing special about them. There's nothing unique about them. There's nothing wonderful about them. That they are simply sinners who have received mercy from God. And that whatever they have has been received by grace. And that God alone is worthy of glory, distinction, and honor in the hearts of his people. And the inner thought of a Christian is that this is right. This is good. This is how it should be. This is what I really want to do. Now notice lastly here then, thirdly, the determination that we must have to humbly lay hold of grace. And this, Jesus sums it all up. First of all, we are to serve to the glory of God not self. God alone is God, and since He is God, He alone is worthy of honor. And notice what He says in verse 11. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Now notice when He says this, what He does not say. What does He not say? He does not say this, that the greatest among you shall do acts of service. That's not what He says. He says something much more powerful than that. He says, shall be your servant. In other words, the one who is truly great in God's kingdom is the one who has the basic attitude of heart, the basic disposition and mindset that sees himself or herself as an instrument in the hands of God to serve others. That's what greatness in the kingdom is. And it reflects God's own heart. You remember Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. When they were having these discussions, one of their discussions about who was the greatest, Jesus tells them this. And of course, he'd already told them that he's going to the cross. But then he says this. He says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what greatness is. That's what a true teacher is. That is what the life of God looks like, ultimately displayed in the person of Christ who went to the cross, who suffered there shame, reproach, rejection, pain, 
even the rejection of his own father in some mysterious sense as he suffered for our sins on the cross. That is the heart of repentance that Jesus calls us to. That's the heart of spiritual life. Do you want to know if you're increasing in spiritual life? Are you increasing in this kind of heart of a servant? That's the mark. If you are not, then there is no increase. If that's not there at all, then there may be no life at all. The attitude of one who possesses such spiritual strength is demonstrated in their ability to serve. In other words, it's not weakness. It's not a servile impish kind of attitude towards others. That's not what he's talking about. It's not this weaky, pansy-wamsy sort of doormat mentality. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that it's an attitude of one who possesses such spiritual strength, such fellowship with God, that he's not shackled by the fear of man. He doesn't need man's approval so he can gladly serve others and be delighted in that service because it's a pleasure to God no matter what anyone else thinks. Beloved, that is a sign of spiritual strength, not spiritual weakness. That is a sign of manhood, not weakness, when we can serve others. Jesus was at one of his most great earthly displays of this kind of spiritual strength and service when he did what? Well, Pastor Reardon covered this however long ago. When he took a towel, he girded himself, and he went around the table, and he washed the dirty feet of the disciples, and he says, now you go and do the same thing. And the issue there, I would note, is not the deed itself. It's not simply that that was what a slave did. That's not the heart of what he's saying. He did do that, and that's wonderful. The issue that's going on there that Jesus is talking about is that And what he's displaying is that he so laid aside his honor. That was a shame-honor culture. And here you had the Lord of all, their God, who set aside his honor before those from whom he should have received it to serve them. That was an act of strength. That was an act of spiritual life. In fact, of course, he was life itself. And the greatest display, even more, is obviously, again, the cross. The cross. He should have received praise from all of creation. He should have received praise from the nation that he called out and was a rock to them throughout their entire history. He should have received praise from his disciples, but instead he set all of that aside to suffer for them and received instead shame. Despising the shame, Hebrews 12 tells us, he went to the cross for the joy set before him. That is the sign of life. When you have the attitude of a servant for God's glory and because of his grace, in that moment we are most like Christ and we give the greatest testimony to our knowing him and having his spirit in us and having tasted his grace. Look what he says lastly. Humble yourselves then that you may know God's exaltation. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This is it. This is it. And I would note to you that this is then the heart of saving faith. This is the heart of saving faith. He's not just simply talking about this is the good way that a Christian should live. It is indeed that. But he's saying this is the very essence of what it means to know Christ. It's the heart of saving faith. It's the heart of repentance and obedience and love for Christ. Saving faith begins with our humbling ourselves before God as a child. 
If that has not happened, there is no saving faith, regardless of whatever else is in the life. The basic disposition of a Christian, though we obviously fail terribly, but the basic disposition of a Christian is someone that's humbled before God, who trusts alone in His grace in Christ. The basic disposition of a Christian will readily acknowledge our own weakness, our own guilt, and our own inability to do anything for salvation and looks completely to the grace that God has provided in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be in the kingdom, the one who has humbled himself like this. A false teacher or one who is living this duplicitous, this false religious life, this false religious uh, profession, does not live like that, at least inwardly. That's not the reality of the heart. They don't humble themselves before God. They have no sincere trust in Him alone. They have no true desire to humble themselves in service to others. That's what he's exposing. Now what does this mean? Is he referring to being humbled in this life? Or is he referring to it eschatologically? In other words, in terms of those things at the end of the age. Well, I would suggest to you that since it's possible to receive the praise of men and stay in that condition until you die, and still having received the honor of men without a right heart, he's referring here ultimately to that humbling that's going to come and that exaltation that's going to come at the end of the age when all men stand before Christ. In other words, whoever exalts himself in this world, whoever is going to be focused on this self-life in this world, whoever is going to hold on to this inner life of trust in your own righteousness, whoever is going to hold on to this inner life of sin and will fight and protect that no matter what, that they would not be exposed and humbled before others, and they're going to stay like that, in their case, even enough that they would kill him and murder Christ, then At the end, there's going to be humiliation. In other words, suffering and judgment. What a reversal that will be. What a day of horror that will be for those who live this life of hypocrisy. Can you imagine? How sorrowful and how shameful and how regretful and how horrified these will be who neglect to humble themselves here on earth, who love to receive praise here and reject the glory that comes from God, only to have it pass away like a vapor and endure everlasting contempt and shame from God. Daniel 12. Now while the ultimate picture here then is of judgment at the end of the age, God also brings judgment at times to the proud on earth. Daniel 4.4, Nebuchadnezzar is an example. And even to his own children when we walk in the sin, he'll humble us, he'll take things away, he'll bring us low, he'll show us who we really are. But now then, on the other hand, if we humble ourselves here, if we're willing to forgo the praise of men, if we let go of the secret life, if we let go of love of honor in this world, and we want to receive the honor that comes from God, if you willingly acknowledge your sin, your guilt, your helplessness, which is spiritual reality anyway, it's just acknowledging it, and humbly trust in Christ, then he says that person will be exalted. That person will be exalted. That is, shall ultimately be exalted with Christ and see Him in His glory. That is, shall be exalted to share in Him with His inheritance that He purchased with His own blood. So Jesus here gives a warning then of fostering secret pride that cuts us off from the grace of God in Christ. He calls us to renounce it, to humble ourselves before Him, give up love of honor in this world and seek His honor alone. 
Seek His grace. Seek His nearness. Seek His pleasures alone. They're freely given to the humble. Again, He went to the cross and endured the suffering and despised the shame and rose from the grave so that we could share in His honor, but He utterly rejects, utterly rejects and despises when we seek to take that on ourselves. Humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves before God. And if there's any here who are listening and hear a description of yourself more in the hypocrite side. In other words, you don't know this kind of brokenness over sin. In other words, you don't know this kind of confession that takes you to your prayers at night saying, Lord, forgive me for my attitude. Lord, humble me before you. Lord, please make me to abhor the sin in my life that robs you of your glory. If that is a prayer that is utterly foreign to you, then that may be that you're in the hypocrite side. For those of us who do long for that purity, and yet we see at times a sin in our life, we are reminded that there is grace at the cross. There is grace at the cross. And there's grace only at the cross, but there's grace fully there. Let's pray, and then David will, someone will come and lead us in him. Father, we thank you for your word. Our Lord, we thank you for your word that you did come to this earth as John tells us that you would reveal the Father. And you did reveal to us truth for you are truth. You did reveal to us the very truth that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart even as the writer of Hebrews said. And we thank you for doing that. And I pray that you would use your word to conform us to your image. I pray that you would use your word to bring any who hear this passage to come and and who are hypocrites to come and to give their life to you truly. To let go of all of that supposed secrecy that they have in their heart. That secret love for the praise of men. Secret security in their own righteousness. And they gladly give it up that they could know what is true righteousness, true grace, and salvation, that they might know you. We thank you again for your spirit and for your word and for the grace of the cross. And our Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.